Oh, that was that was more stressful than I intended it to be. Let's have a song so that you can relax just a little bit. Okay. Okay. All right. I was clean, a patron. I was young and actress. I'm a mattress and asked for my hand. I was sad. You asked him as I laid in the mattress with my father in the casket and had no plans. <laughs> awesome. Okay, now if we could just handle the one second time difference. Yeah, right. Oh. I don't think okay, I can music. turn the background for effect. Yeah, yeah. The music will soothe the soul. Anyways, uh, let's um, snap to it. Do you want to introduce yourself there, sir? You're listening to the Can't Sell This Podcast with your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Um, you mean like, hi, I'm Jared Ficklin, founding partner at Argo Design, chief creative technologist, uh, futurist, and oh. uh, terrible skateboarder, better roller skater. <laughs> you know, this is one of the interesting things, uh, Jared, is, is uh, you, one of the things that I, f- I first learned about you, we were on a, a uh, wasn't necessarily the first thing, but one of the first things, we're on a bus ride to Brighton from London. And you said, I design skate parks. And it was like, you know, you went from the guy that, that worked with fire and Rubens tubes and Chladni plates or Chladni plates to the guy that designed skate parks. And you, you became, I mean, like this much cooler. If the scale is <laughs> that tall, you went from the like, record you know, in the podcast. He, the, the, he's holding his hands like really far apart. Well, you know, honestly, <laughs> there's there's just not enough ceiling. There's there's not enough height in my in my basement for me to stretch my hand. I was just super stoked about it. I thought it was one of the cooler things I'd heard anyone say. Is like I've designed skate parks, and it was like because <sighs> you're an advocate for skateboarding. I've had a very eclectic design career, and something that popped up was because I was a lifelong skateboarder when I moved to Austin a good friend of mine Seth Johnson uh, brought me into some skate activism and we founded something called the Austin Public Skate Park Action Committee and this was a little citizens action group to try and get public skate parks free to the public of concrete and steel skate parks built in the hill country in Austin Texas turned into a 10-year project wow of amazing political machinations like we pulled so many amazing stunts starting with amending the texas constitution to indemnify skateboarding no way Uh, liability that's where we began Uh, and then we uh did a lot of fundraising the fundraising on the private side went so poorly that we kind of turned public routes and um ended up negotiating a three-way deal between a federal Superfund cleanup site, two neighborhood associations, a developer fees, the city manager, and the Parks and Recreation Department to get the first skate park 
in Austin built in Mabel Davis Park, which was a super fun cleanup site. It was an old um, uh, landfill. And which you won like, a Best kind of, of Austin amenities? Awards. A Best of Austin Award for That's correct. Best Half Pipe and More for the Mabel Davis Skate Park. Yeah, and at that at that reward ceremony, we actually confronted Lloyd Doggett and asked him, uh, who is our representative uh, in Congress, and asked him um, how he we could get more money for more skate parks. <laughs> 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 it was really great. He's like, amend really the Constitution, like, boy. <laughs> Next thing you know, yeah. <laughs> you amend so the Constitution. That, we did, yeah. Yeah, we're like, hey, we're, we're like, you know, we're like big political bigwigs there hanging out at the uh, you know, uh, backspace, uh, you know. Not just a couple of knuckleheads. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but as part of that, we ended up like, um, we, the skate park had to be designed and we wanted local skaters to do it. So we facilitated all these workshops and we also wanted like um, quality designers and construction companies to build it. And um, that was a, its own political mess of, of bond writing um, so that, uh, or RFP writing so that, you know, some swimming pool contractor didn't come in and win the bid on the lowest bid. So, right. so we, had, we made sure that the city wrote the bid that, that the person who built the skate park had to have built um, 12 or more skate parks in the past, which kind of <laughs> meant that only three companies in the world could bid on it. The, and at that time, there really were only three skate park construction companies um, in, the, in North America. One of them was this company called Grindline, which was founded by a bunch of people who built the Burnside projects in Seattle. And um, so they won the bid and they were really only interested in the bowl. And they're like, well, what's your street design course design? So we had all this in public input and it ended up us and the local skate shop owner and three of her street team members sat there and sketched out the whole skate park because the original design we got was just crap. And what we did is we used inspiration from some very famous skate park spots in the 90s. And so we actually went out and had the big three and the big five from Embarcadero in San Francisco measured. And then there's this little uh, Ottawa gap, um, Euro gap that we had measured. And then we measured the, uh, um, and we built those into a flow of a skate park um, uh, that um, we knew would service a whole lot of skaters right. by setting up three lanes. But then when the skate park got less busy as we built up more skate parks, it would have a circular flow to it. So that when you had a lot of skaters there, Actually, there were three lanes that went back and forth. So, so three people could be taking lines at once. And then later it became a nice circular uh, line. And it actually worked out great. And so now the interesting thing I think is um, Embarcadero was torn down. Right. I just went looking for it. I was, like, I was looking for the Embarcadero hmm. skate park and it's gone. So like... And so the big three and the big five, along with the, you know, the, the Gons Gap, right, were legendary, um, you know, amongst skateboarders in the 90s, right? So now if you want to ollie the big three or the big five, it's not made of brickwork. We couldn't afford that. But come to Austin at Mabel Davis Skate Park, we have an exact replica of the big three and the big five if you want to ever, you know, do that kickflip and stick it and say, I kickflip the big five. <laughs> 
And we continued this with the next park, which is called House Park. And this ended up being, House Park is right downtown. And this time we negotiated a deal between the Austin um, um, Community College, ACC, and they were threatening to move out of downtown because they had no parking. They wanted to build a parking garage in, how, in this place called House Park. The city couldn't do it because they have this legislation that says you can't convert parkland to things like parking. You have to have the same square footage of parking. Meanwhile, they had this athletic building from the 70s um, that had asbestos in it. And the city had no money to remediate it or political will because too many people's kids had like grown up and worked out in there in high school, you know? And so um, this was really weird. Uh, what we did is we got AC and C to put up the money to tear down the athletic building in return for the city building them a parking garage, but the ground floor would be a skate park so they would lose no parkland square footage <laughs> and everyone went home happy. Uh, and then the, the, and the, the, then we needed to pay for it all. And so we had, we had to get on a bond issuance. And so we were one of the rare cases where citizens actually placed a line item on the bond for something they wanted. And the way we did it is we started going to every public bond hearing meeting and, and proposing we need $3 million to build this skate park, part of this $300 million bond package. And they kept not putting it on the bond. Um, so at the last one, we rallied everyone and we showed up with about 124 skateboard sporters and we had, uh, we got there extra early and I signed up for the public speaking and then they all signed up behind me. So think of like five sheets <laughs> of sign up. And what the rules are is everyone who signs up gets two gets minutes moment, to speak two to, minutes, the, yeah. to the committee. Right. And so I go up there and I, I, I thimming through the, through the, the bond. I'm like, here's like 5 million for golf cart paths at um, the Austin. I was like, what if I was like, I play golf there all the time. One of the paths in great shape. How about you take a hundred thousand out of that? And then I just went through, I was like, okay, there's your 3 million. You don't have to do anything. Uh, it doesn't have to be new money. It doesn't have to take the bond past 300 million. It's, and then they're like time. I'm like, okay. And so I stepped aside, this skateboarder comes up behind me and he goes, I yield my time to Jared. And then I just kept going. I was like, okay, now there's this. <laughs> and this Man, happened about five system. times. This happened about five times and the chair, the chair interrupts. He makes some motion and he's like, he makes a motion to, to basically pause the proceedings for a moment, right? And while it's paused, he just managed to slip in. He's like, how many of the people here are skateboarders? And a hundred hands go up. Nice. And then he motions to him and I go up to the side of the bond. He's like, he's like, are you guys going to do this all night? I was like, yeah. It's like by my calculations, we should be finished with public um, comment about nine 30 in the morning. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, if I put a line, I he's like, if I put your line item on this bond, will you yield your time? I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> and so we come back, I come back up to the thing and I said, I, and I, I said, um, uh, he made this parliamentary move. He's like, does everyone signed up to speak on this thing, yield their time to Jared? They all used their hand. And I said, I yield my time. And then he made a motion to add a line item to the bond and he added our $3 million line item to the bond. And that is like <laughs> movie quality 
scoundrelism you know like that is just like that's that's a scallywag move dude i'll tell you what like that is that just that's just so good yeah there was cheering and and a bunch of people with their boards went out in the street went skateboarding and then the city council cut it to one and a half million and then parks and rec um spent all one and a half million on house park which is an acre skate park in right in the middle of downtown austin that land is so valuable. It was a huge coup. And we did the right. same thing in that skate park. We, we have a copy of the Ottawa banks and the China banks uh, uh, in that skate park as well. So there's other um, really cool um, replicas. We also made uh, um, skatable sculpture in there. There's this big metal wave that looks like God like picked up a corner of the skate park. And as you go up it and go come down it, it makes this really cool ringing sound. So you mm. know anytime someone hits it, it was done by an artist named Chris Levac, um, who is a skateboarder and an artist. And so like our next three months was attending art and public places meetings so that we could get skatable art instead of some like corporate, like, <laughs> man, I learned so much about like, how corrupt so, and scummy uh, government can so, be, but it was like super for, fun. For, for the record, like, it, it, were you at that point when we were sitting on the bus and were you at this point where you'd, you'd already done the Mabel Davis and the, the house park? Had you done these two things? No, we were because in between the two. We had you done Mabel the Davis two. and so not you hadn't even house done park. the shenanigans yeah. that are the house park. That, I love that, man. That, that, that like, and, and that's, that's such a quiet little success to be honest like like uh, as someone who likes to think of myself as being in the know of what my you know contacts are up to i never heard that story that's amazing that's an amazing story i'm so glad it was <laughs> yeah, on the podcast <laughs> me too i guess because not a lot of people know it i just wanted you know i believed in that a healthy this is what i used to tell people and i, I do truly believe that a healthy culture needs a healthy counterculture and one of the yes. things that make austin such a great cultural city was the counterculture of music but as austin was growing so fast the pillar of music was not big enough to support the city and it was leaning over right and there's mm-hmm. all this austin isn't weird anymore and I thought a very complimentary that extreme sports, skateboarding and BMX in particular, were very complimentary to music and that we could shore it up. And that if we yeah. built infrastructure, the reason the music scene is so healthy in Austin, live music capital of the world, is the infrastructure. All these clubs, all these rehearsal spaces, a place called Rock and Roll Rentals where you can rent a full backline for a hundred bucks, almost nothing, because the guy is just so altruistic about the whole thing, right? And this means that everyone can have a band because they have a place to rehearse, they have places to play. It's not the good music capital of the world, by the way, it's just the live music capital of the world, but still, <laughs> it's a healthy countercultural uh, movement. Skateboarding, we did the same thing. We were like, I was like, if we could build a dozen skate parks, right, that means kids will grow up and they'll always have a place to go skate and practice. They'll become this little countercultural movement. Next thing you know, you have five retail shops, right? And then um, I always thought, I was like, Dell ships out, you know, you know, one in four PCs to the world from Austin, Texas. I was, I was like, where? I was like, the skateboard.com fulfillment center is in LA. It needs to move to Austin. So these skateboarders then have a place to work while, you know, being totally yeah. immersed in the thing. Yeah. And then I used to joke when we were doing it, I was like, if we build these infrastructure, we'll have the X Games. Um, right. And sure enough, it, we built this infrastructure and all of this, except for the skateboard.com moving, came true. We started having people placed in the programs. We started having touring uh, uh, 
pros come through town. All this video was getting filmed in Austin. And the next thing you know, we have the X Games for three years. Um, it was just really cool. And so that, that counterculture of extreme sports shoring up. And now Austin's grown even more. And I don't know what the next counterculture should be. It probably should be like interactive art or like, uh, you know, something like, or maybe like, I don't know, maybe some AI combat sport or something. I don't know. <laughs> what the next kind of, let's, it's whatever you're interested in, yeah, Jared. <laughs> let's, let's try to get, uh, let's try to get drone racing back up there. Yeah. Leave your ideas in the comments below. Yeah. yeah. Drone racing would be, there's a decent there uh, is. drone DRL uh, uh, yeah. feeder league in Austin. My brother has, has brought it to maker fair a couple of years. Drone racing is incredible. It's mm-hmm. so cool. It's what's amazing in, with drone is, is the number of people I know that are actually using drones and they're building your own FPV uh, mm-hmm. tracks so that like you can like zoom around with the goggles on and like, you know, get your way around a thing. I'm like, I crashed one drone into a tree. I crashed a second drone into a house. I uh, crashed my helicopter into the ceiling. I, you know, although I've been riding a motorcycle for 20 something 30 years like you know i haven't crashed that you know but i crashed every drone i ever touch <laughs> yeah. i'm just i'm just garbage at it i don't know whatever it doesn't matter this is a yeah, totally it's a inconsequential young person's uh twitch <laughs> sport yeah. yeah well but no it's true i can go to this more. this is funny i go to i go to house park all the time uh i i can barely skate anymore i blew out the, like a funny end of the like coda to this story is that three months after Mabel Davis was open, I completely blew out my PCL in the bowl oh. uh, <laughs> on my left leg. Um, and I learned, um, you know how I learned, you know how you know if someone is hurt at the skate park? Cause it just gets standing it silent. Cause it goes silent. Oh, right. Like, because like when you, everybody if, stops moving, constant crashing, whatever. And when you crash, you either get ribbed or you get encouraged to go back and do it again or whatever. Right. But w- when I, um, I went over this hip crashed the wrong way, stars blacked out came to, and I knew I was hurt. I was in that shock stage where you feel no pain, but I knew it was hurt because it was dead quiet. Everyone yeah. at the top was like making no noise because apparently they heard the knee up there and everyone went, shh. <laughs> and then one person says, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And they're like, someone's got to help them out. Yeah. <laughs> like they yeah. realized I didn't oh. know that I was <laughs> not okay. the wrong way. <laughs> That's like, no, do, you, so, know, but do you, you know, Jerry Chaboya, right? Jerry Chaboya from Influxus yeah. and Xerxes when he fell in Josh Davis's half pipe. Like, man, when he fell, we were all watching it live stream and, and we're all kind of joking around. He fell and he got up and he went like this and we're like, ah, ha, ha, and he broke his arm. Like, I mean, in a lot of places, like he had to go to the hospital. He had to get like, like, yeah. like rivets and whatnot put in there. I'm, I remember seeing him like a couple years later, he still got a great big scar on his arm. Like that was, and that was a moment where a lot of us just kind of reacted like, whoo, you know, and I can, I can imagine that in a skate park where there's, I think the thing is about, you know, I've talked about this with, with somebody else uh, uh, in another episode, we were talking about skating. Cause I skated when I was a teenager, but there's a camaraderie that's involved. Like, even if you're kind of a crappy skater, you're still a skater, you know, you're making the same amount of noise as everybody else. And you're just hanging out in a big group. And you, all you really want to do is everybody needs to enjoy themselves. Right. Like you're getting yelled at by 
some jerk off who has a store who doesn't want you skating past. And there's a certain amount of like that counterculture thing that goes on where you're just like, man, I'm just trying to enjoy myself. I'm just trying to hang mm-hmm. out with my friends. I'm mm-hmm. kind of not good at what I'm doing, but I'm really just enjoying myself. Like, let it go. So when someone yeah. gets hurt, that's why it goes silent. Cause we're like, man, there's not a lot of us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. For me, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I was like, I was that guy. I was that terrible skater as a kid. But for me that then uh, like translated to snowboarding mm. and I started snowboarding uh, here while well, in, in Ottawa uh, back when most of the hills had maybe one run, if any, right. that were open right. to snowboarders. And it used to be my buddy Rob and I would go up and we'd be sitting in the, in the chairlift with our snowboards and we'd see like one other dude or, you know, couple girls like blasting down the hill on their snowboards and we're just like we got to catch up to them and then we'd have new friends for the rest of the season yeah yeah and it's, yeah. it's accessibility awesome. is a huge these... thing right mm-hmm. yeah sorry, you're sorry, part sorry, of Jerry, these... go ahead oh no i just say it's perfect like it was these countercultures like they, they become scenes and when people find their scenes i think um they're more open and relatable to other people. Like, you, you know, because as a, as a singular person persecuted, you, you tend to lash out. But as a, as, as once you have a few other people to identify with, it's a lot easier to just, um, you know, laugh it out and be like, no, we have our own thing going on. And, and yeah. it turns more into self. It's a lot more positive. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, it just, I always identified with this individual pursuit of sports, right. You know, and rather than the team pursuit. And so I really just wanted this. Imp- we just wanted, you know, me and Seth and, and the whole group of skateboarders involved, we just really wanted to see this. And, and we were conflicted with this. Like we were aware that by making these official things, we were going to take the counterculture and move it a little more towards culture, right? Sure. Accepted culture. And sure enough, like, you know, next year at the 2020 Olympics, um, uh, skateboarding for the first time olympic mm-hmm. sport <laughs> and so like we 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 were like this small part of the movement that like uh, turned counterculture into accepted sport i was joking it was like golf i was like I, I used to show this little picture from like england where someone had this thing in their field like in the 1400s or something that said you know like ye who are who come here to play golf shall be like executed at the stocks or whatever. I was like, there was a time when golfers <laughs> were the right. college counterculture. Yeah. The criminals. Yeah. Just Harley playing in Harley. someone's <laughs> pasture, scaring the cows. Right. Now they're like, you know, all, uh, I just, all buttoned up. I'm picturing them with like uh, bones brigade era hairstyles and, and, you know, having the lingo, but having the skater lingo. Hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. If anything skaters and golfers have in common, it's like a love for bad shorts, right? <laughs> <laughs> we finally something, something, to, <laughs> something to, to connect about. with. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. It's well, and listen as, to as me. As far as design goes, that's the design I, I I've done. That's good. I think it'll last longer than anything else. It wasn't. I mean, well, it yeah, wasn't it just my concrete. design. It was it's bound to last pretty long, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I go into but, those parks now, and and nobody knows who I was or who designed them, um, and that doesn't really matter. But it's just really cool to see. Do 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 you feel that that the path you've led? where you are now, the path you led from there to, to where you are now, like, 
do you feel you've always, and I, I'm going to say this because I, I kind of have an inkling as the answer. Do you feel you've always embraced the counterculture? Do you always, do you always sort of look to what is under service, underrepresented before you start to get involved in it? Uh, yeah. I'm a contrarian by nature. Um, and so, yeah, I think so. I think in my uh, product design career, this has really led me to always be looking for like the bleeding edge technology and the giving birth to like a new pattern or a new interaction model or something that has not existed before, something that was different from what was out there, you know? Yeah. Um, it, you know, there's a natural inclination for that. I think so. And then, well, obviously we're not going to keep talking about skate parks. It was just one of those funny, like, dude, I remember this. Okay. I remember that bus trip too. That year at Brighton was pretty amazing too. That was like one of the last years of Flash on the Beach before it converted to reasons to be creative. That was the year that I spoke at Brighton the first time. And it was the year that um, Dave Schroeder invited me to speak at Flash Belt. Awesome. Which was which was super cool. Yeah. So I was everything, everything about that year was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Worked out for the yeah, best. And I love that. That flash conference circuit was just really good people. Mm -hmm. It was so fun. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, okay, well, so, so that, that brings us back. So Stefan is, is like sort of a long-term like public speaker in terms of like the, the flash world and whatnot. But, um, you know, his, his focus has been about narrative and, and, and whatever, but right. You know, the, 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 I like to think of, the flash community has having been the counterculture to web development and the web from, from way back. Like the idea that you weren't fucking punk, like being in a flash guy or a flash person like that, like flash was so punk because it was just like, does it work on IE sick? I don't know. Does it work on Netscape? Mm, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it, I don't give a shit. Like it's working on the thing I'm skip working intro. on. And I, and I, yeah. Skip <laughs> intro, bite me. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, Oh, your computer's fans started. <laughs> My fans are always on. I don't know. Like, as far as I'm concerned, that's how it is. So like, you know, we, we I, you know, we created the punk movement of flash. We created the punk movement of, of web dev and, and, and like a whole new genre of, of the web world, you know what I mean? And so like that translated out to the, the, yeah. the, the speaker world when we got invited to talk at, at conferences, like, dude, I saw you in San Francisco and I just was like, you know, I caught Pucknell like uh, outside the, the, whatever the center was and, and going like, did you see Jared Ficklin? Like, like you had just finished talking and he was like, no, I missed it. Why? I'm like, Oh my God, you got to have him at FITC. <laughs> you got to do it. Like he had fucking fire. You know what I mean? Like his fucking fire was my reaction. And, and he's just like, what? what do you mean fire goes? Yeah. He made this Rubens tube thing. And like, he showed a video of this whole like plate with holes in it called the Kolodny plate. And, and he did a thing with audio reaction with crows and he talked to them. And it was like, he, he was a showman. Like you were the Barnum and Bailey of, of, of flash guys without doing a ton of flash. You know what I mean? Like, like it was, it was like, you, I do like, really do a ton well, of flash. Like I, I never had like a macromedia side of the day or anything no. like that. Like the way I was using flash in those days was like, I was spinning laptops for Dell. I was like doing screensavers for Dell 
and like doing microsites for, you know, like little startups, you know, that had like web TV products and stuff. And then I, mm-hmm. you know, and in those Excuse days, you know, and even doing CD-ROMs, like CD-ROMs were still around, but yeah, I had this obsession with sound visualization mm-hmm. and I wasn't a traditional coder. Like, uh, you know, I had an issue you know, I had a subscription to basic magazine, which put me in like this kind of procedural coding. And I think that that there was a philosophy of, of flash coders. We were like the proceduralists, like object orientation (laughs) came to us, like came late in life. And then, (laughs) and then we we started like, you know, like, you know, then, and then we're like, you know, people were talking about MVC, like, like people trying to bring real patterns in and we're like, nah, I'll just keep looping shit, man. The elastic racetrack is awesome. You should try it. Uh, (laughs) It was, uh, it was really good times. It's like, yep. Memory management. Nah, don't need that. (laughs) I'll just, just add Ram to my machine. That's fine. I'll put Um, more Ram on. Yeah. It was very liberating in a lot of ways. It wasn't just like in the design and the website, what websites were for, like there was a lot of innovation there and patterns and a lot of contrarian, like, counterculturalism to the web in that mm-hmm. you know things could move things could have states they didn't it didn't have to have a history mm-hmm. um it could be an inner like like mooc right it could be an interface that required two or more people to even operate it like just a really great artistic stuff and a lot of it was borrowed and brought in but um mm-hmm. it's great but i you know i just gosh you know i can remember admire really admiring craig swan the way he was like doing interactive art and flash like together like making right. stuff both physical and, and code and then like strangely my profession diverged from the flash community in a lot of ways i yeah i got more and more into product design at frog and i used flash in ways that i still like the skate park i don't think people know because um we were doing user, I was doing user experience simulation with it. Like right. the dot-com bust happened in 2000. I stopped being, it stopped being any way, shape or form profitable to pay Jared to make a flash website or microsite or yeah. screensaver. And in order to save my career, what I started doing was using flash to simulate the interface of a, industrial design product that was becoming computerized with a screen on it. And so this was what was happening in computer history at the time. Everything was getting screens. So like one of the first examples of this was there was a Turkish appliance company called Archelic. And Archelic wanted to digitize their line of dishwashers, washing machines, and refrigerators with little LCD screens. And so they were going to be changing the 100 year pattern of push in twist pull out to set your washing machine right for german grandmas and what was that going to be what was that interface going to be meanwhile engineering setup costs are massive cost seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to set up your first control board back then to run an lcd on a washing machine right Mm. so we would take a fraction of that money and basically do five, six, seven different variations of interfaces in Flash, I would use all those techniques I learned from Craig Swan to connect them to actual buttons and everything. Yeah. And we'd do these maquettes. We would do like foam core. Meanwhile, Frog was doing the industrial design for the machine and we would you know, stuff LCD monitors in foam core maquettes with real buttons and we would run German grandmas through them. 
to sure. see what worked and what didn't. And this was what I was doing with Flash for years. I, and I was doing like retail kiosks. And then this went all the way up until I did four interfaces for the Xbox One in Flash using um, also open frameworks and connect hacking um, so right. that they could be controlled by iPhones, that you could do gestures, right? All of it at full fidelity. And we did four or five complete interfaces that were voice gesture and smart glass as well as Xbox controllers and ran them through user testing, all these things. And I did all of that in flash. It was right. kind of insane. <laughs> but I think what I was that, doing for 10 years and it was yeah, like but, all under NDA and I could never speak about it at conferences. It never showed up in any of my presentations, <laughs> which were always about like sound visualization or like whatever hack I was doing in my garage lately or some philosophical thing on science fiction. Right. Uh, meanwhile, I, you know, me with, I was on this team for two years that designed the Xbox one interface and <laughs> I don't think any yeah. of the flash community knows that. <laughs> I don't think they, I don't know. We know that we use flash to do it. <laughs> well, I bet you they'd be like, if, if, they, if anybody from Adobe is listening to this podcast, when it comes out, when this episode comes out, they're going to be like, <clears throat> we'd like to uh, call Jared Ficklin. <laughs> There's a few people, I think, working on a history of Flash. And I'm like, this needs to be a chapter. There are, it was a whole group of products from like MB3 players yeah. to, you know, like these game consoles that, that Flash played a major role because it was such a friendly coding environment and it could create this standalone. And it was such a creative, it was like, it was mm -hmm. so welded to the front end that you could do so much with it. So like HP printers, we did HP TouchMart printers. These are another really cool full engineering, like we call a parents model build. So our model shop made these, um, really they're just hunks of like wood and plastic, but they paint them up and take such care that they look exactly like the final product. And we just right. hollowed them out a little extra, threw some fidgets in, through an LCD screen in it. We've did 56 iterations awesome. and usability testings in six different locations in the world. And what we designed was the first consumer touchscreen printer as a result. And that printer was super successful. It was on the market for like six or seven years. And it was one, it was um, two of them, two of the TouchMart printers were the, were were selected to be in the Apple store next to their <laughs> laser writer. There were only three printers in the early Apple stores. It was their laser right. writer and these two printers. I used to go like such a shameful, like, like Google yourself move. I used to go in the Apple store and play with them and <laughs> be like, that's, that's, I helped you design this. that. I did this. You know, what's worse is it's flash. Flash. <laughs> we did it. Tommy, sir, we just need you to leave the Apple story. Don't don't come I was back. sending <laughs> Robert Penner easing <laughs> equations to these like really low-level engineers that write like the code that actually drive the screens. Right. And they didn't know how to do like a sliding animation. They're like, there's no animation in the library. And I was like, what library? And it turns out like um, you know, Indian engineers would sell these systems on a chip that would drive the screens with an animation library in it. And these engineers thought the only animations you could do were the ones that you could call into this thing to, to do. Right. And I was like, guys, a sliding blit, I was like blitting a bitmap array across the screen is really easy. Here's like three lines of code that do it, you know, with a, you know, Robert Penner style easing equation and, and the quadratic <laughs> ease. And they're like, they're like, 
oh, okay. And they did it. So the, the thing actually had all these geographic sliding animations we had planned for it. And it wouldn't have otherwise because. Right. Well, part of it's right place, Amazing. right time, right? Yeah. There's a huge well, it's, I mean. So, so thinking about like, like the flash, the culture that surrounds flash. And then, you know, we talked about skateboarding and the culture, counterculture that surrounded that. Uh, I mean, it, it makes me also think about, uh, I don't know if either of you have been watching um, High Score. I think we talked about this, Hugh. On Netflix, uh, high score is the sort of history of the video games. No, I'm gonna. I'll look it up. You keep yeah, talking. It's a it's a it's a little documentary series, but it it reminded me a little bit. Um, there's like this prehistory of of electronic arts that I didn't really know. I was too young at the time to really figure it out. I think it was like eight or ten at the time when when electronic arts got started. But it hmm. was it was sort of this movement that was counter to what was going on in video games at the time, where the uh, the creators weren't really given credit and electronic arts oh, right. came okay. out and they were like, we're going to make our uh, game developers rock stars. Right. And they're, they are artists. And like they're like the famous ad that when there's an episode that's about the famous ad that was, uh, can a video game make you cry or can a computer make you cry? Mm. And uh, so the whole idea was to do something beyond just a, a program, but to make something that was art. And that to me was also the sort of the counterculture at the start of the video game industry. And uh, Jared, I'm really fascinated with what you were saying about this idea that culture needs counterculture, otherwise there's no balance. And I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering if we are now getting into a state where there's, no, there's never room for counterculture to grow because everyone is so poised on finding the next big thing and exploiting it and making it mainstream as fast as possible. I mean, even startup culture itself is all about, I'm going to start my company. And before it even becomes a thing, I want to sell it to Apple or Google or whoever is going to buy us Facebook. And, but, but you need that, you need that, that sort of culture of, or in this case, developers who are going to work in flash and, and say things like, I don't care about, memory management. I want to make this cool thing and I'm just going to kit bash it together until it becomes, a, a, you know, art. And, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, you know, there was a transition happening where experience, well, I mean, this is what you speak about a lot, right? The narrative where the experience was you know, like Hartman used to say, form follows emotion, right? And that the experience was like beginning to become more important than the feature set or as yeah. important, right? Apple has, you know, since, you know, perfected this in a lot of ways, but really now it's like the hallmark of every product, right? This was the trend in product design, but yeah, so that freedom to really explore the experience of surfing the web or what a digital interface could be. Because I think flash coders were already imagining, you know, uh, computing being far more ubiquitous because I think maybe it had been in their lives. It had been something that they had turned to. Like most flat, flash guys that I talked to, like they also had like a subscription to Basic Magazine. Like technology had been something they turned to like largely in their youth um, uh, or their college years, and like had had really fallen in love with it and had found a way to start making money with it and just kept pursuing it and um, and had like almost this like really interesting you know, vision of, of, 
of the world that is now like getting much more realized, which is why probably we sound so grumpy in circles when we're like, you know, talking about current, like modern web technologies <laughs> or like, oh, good thing they finally learned how to do 3D or, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know that, that kind of frustration. But yeah, it, God, it had a counter-cultural thing too. And, you know, I think product design itself amongst the design tree um, sometimes it, it feels um, a little like you don't always feel fully attached to culture. Um, you, you feel like, um, like strangely at a phase with it. I think part of it is because like you're living a little bit ahead of it. Everyone's at, right. you're always like dealing with what's coming out next. Um, and you know, so like what's like announced for Christmas or whatever, is kind of like the beginning of most people's world. And that's about mm -hmm. five years behind my world or a lot yeah. of product designers world. And so it feels like we're out of phase sometimes with the rest of culture and, that breeds some really interesting things. Uh, product designers and visual designers or designers in general tend to be very high anxiety people because um, we're always thinking of the future and having to do contingencies and we're always having to put opinions out there that are supposed to be right or are said to be right, but we have no idea. Yeah. We have techniques. <laughs> Mm -hmm. We have techniques, you know, that the, we use research to make them highly successful. But people want to know, is this the right answer? You, you kind of yeah. put in this position to say it is, but you really won't know for five years. Yeah. I think, I think every situation in which you're, you're forced to create a number out of opinion is, is like, regardless of the experience that you can point to as this is why I know I'm pretty sure this number is right. Like in terms of like, how long will it take me to do X? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you're like, well, I'm pretty sure because I've spent this long making X or something like X and it took me this long before. So let's average it out and bell curve it. And that gives me this number. And they're like, are you sure? No shit. No, I'm not sure. I'm never sure. <laughs> you know? Let's just get started. Okay. <laughs> Let's just, can we just get started? Like, look, I'll tell you what, give me a month of money and I will spend that month working on your thing. And then I can tell you better whether or not that thing is, is, you know, going to take X or whether it's going to take Y, you know, who knows? You can be, you have to be super presumptive as a starting point. You can then throw experience at it to help. You can throw data at it through design research to help. And you can cut back that presumption yeah. um, at, 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 to smaller okay. and smaller areas, depending on, you know, the field. And then if there's conventions to draw from, that's great. And, uh, and then it can get cut way back. Right. Um, if you're working on something that's live and existing, you can go into kind of a testing regime to really kind of like dial it in. But anytime you're in a unique, unique space, where you have a brand new technology that people are not familiar with. And there isn't like convention to draw from that unique place. Um, it starts to get highly presumptive. And this is where all those things we were just talking yeah. about, like land is that you just got to think by making, like you just mm -hmm. have to start um, by giving it some semblance of real and then the value will state itself. But in the uh, like, so ex let's look at that, that sort of method and extrapolate that upwards into like larger cultural artifacts. Uh, and, and specifically around the idea of how you as a, uh, not, not us specifically, but how a, uh, a large corporation might want 
to look five, 10 years into the future and be able to, to safely predict how products are going to sell, what direction they should be moving their company in, uh, longevity, that sort of thing. And to that point, counterculture is dangerous because if, if a counterculture movement then comes in and says, we've decided to go in a different direction than this path has been leading us on, then you're disrupting business models. So it seems like the idea is what, what co companies need to do is to stop counterculture from infringing on their, or not infringing, but, but from sort of diverging pathways of uh, accepted use of, of, of their objects or of objects in general and how, how we perceive things like the internet to be, right? If we can all predict and all say, this is what the internet is and it will never go beyond these boundaries, then we know what lane we're playing in and we know what we can sell to people. But if somebody comes along and says, F that noise, we're moving this in a different direction because we want to do something new and innovative and different. Um, then it's like, well, fuck now you've, you've messed with my ability as a, as a giant corporation to make money. Right. And, and, and again, that, that, that sort of ties back in and I can't stop thinking about this idea that, you know, if we don't have that con culture, if all we have is now what is considered mass media culture, then we're not innovating. We're not, exploring a new paths. We're not changing in different directions. We're just creating this homogenized 1984, you know, a like cyclical homogeneity yes. is a problem yeah. is, is like when you look at, for instance, you go, people go like, Oh, TikTok, TikTok is huge. So, okay. You know, but you go from fine Instagram, TikTok, you know, like, but the exact same thing existed before. Yeah. There's nothing new about it. Snapchat, like they start to adopt each other's modalities and methodologies so that there's nothing unique about it. Vine was really very cool for a short period of time because it was a, it was a small snapshot of time. It wasn't, you know, when people were making their, their vines, it was, you could only go for, was it six seconds? You know what I mean? Like, like you had to be able to make your story happen in six seconds. That sort of constraint was, it felt super new and then gone, right? Like, gone <laughs> these things have become Twitter. fashion right mm -hmm. these yeah. things have mm -hmm. become fashion because we wear them as we wear them as clothing as part of our identity right and social right. media have matured to that point and so we're seeing that that we're seeing a cyclical fashion cycle there i'd like to yeah. say something though about these the big corporations and products and what you were saying earlier about countercultures and one is they're Big and small companies, in my experience, are quite sensitive to users. Um, they would look at the counterculture as perhaps an opportunity and want to say, can we be there at the right moment as it grows uh, to have them as users? But at the same time, they're very also very sensitive about competitors. Yeah. And so we're in an era where they are free to put quite a bit of pressure on competitors. And I felt like when you were speaking, the two were a little entangled, but some of the things they want to do some, like um, there's a lot of things that are applied towards comp competitors that I think need to be changed that feel like they're directed at users, but they're a little more sensitive than to, to users uh, than they can. So us as users have a lot of power. Um, us as competitors have very little power right now. And I think the two get confounded a little bit because mm. you feel like one, in, especially when you're in the industry, because you feel like both sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, and 
and, and I see that all the time. We see people coming to us all the time, noticing a very countercultural movement or a change, and they see value there, and they want to figure out how can they um, uh, make something for that value. Um, right. And then observationally, I see a lot of things happening, like especially like in the DRM movement here in the U.S. with the big five technology companies, uh, and even like you know John Deere, Mercedes, and 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 all these places. It's coming in. Um, you know, it is an attempt to um, not so much um, remove choice from the user, but to try and um, arrest competition. The result is the same, but I, I think the intentions are different. So there's an unintended consequence of mm-hmm. removing choice from the, from the user until they notice they want to be the provider of all these things. Right. Yeah. It, it, well, it's interesting when it comes to farming equipment, especially where farmers used to be so self-sufficient, they could buy the tractor and that, tra- like my grandfather's tractor was super old. And I mean, like we could manage the pneumatics, the hydraulics, we could manage all the transmission stuff. We could manage all of it because nothing was electronic. Nothing at all was electronic. And now if you were to buy a tractor from John Deere, like they can shut it down remotely. Like, yeah, but electronic is not the problem. Because well, we're talking like about digital rights management. Days, we're talking about DRM, right? We're, that's we're talking the about problem, the, right? Like, it's the, so you the can't update your own software. A, yeah, the problem is you're not allowed to tinker in the yeah. code side. It's not that farmers wouldn't figure out how to tinker in the code side. They totally would learn that, just like they learned the pneumatics when they came out, just like when they learned you know, gasoline over diesel mm-hmm. when it came out, mm-hmm. they would totally come up with some really amazing, innovative stuff if they were given the freedom to do so. The DRM is keep, is made, has made it far it, with these, you know, big accolade of Corey Doctorow, and he has a lot of great writings on this specific thing, right? Yeah. That, you know, it's a felony for them to go in and, and modify or fix their tractor that way. I'm yeah. a, like a car guy. I'm like, I have, I have a, souped up Dotson that I've hand tweaked myself and an ECU that, you know, we program and reprogram all the time. Um, there would be no hot rotting if these existed in the fifties, right? That it, it was a felony to go in and change a part on your motor in a yeah. Chevy Malibu. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. Well, but, I mean, but it all it, came from, it all came from the ability, ability to, to modify what you owned, you know, like a yeah. lot of, a lot of discovery came from, you know, I, I remember, you know, being in a meeting, we're talking about, I don't know what the vehicle was. It was a vehicle of some sort, but they talked about the fact that the Honda Civic is the most popular moddable car on the market. Like it's the most popular car because it has the highest concentration of people actually modifying their vehicle. So you can buy a stock Honda Civic and you could have it modified in a, in a couple of months relatively cheaply and, and, and really think of it as your own vehicle. And now like, you know, <laughs> my wife's motorcycle versus my motorcycle is a very different thing. My motorcycle is 2007. Her motorcycle is 2018. So like she doesn't have the same ability to modify it the way I have with mine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, she, well, she totally. has an electronic system versus mine is, I mean, it's, it's old, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not by wire. I'm just doing my best to keep it alive, but it, 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 it's a funny, it's a funny thing where the second you involve a corporation's decisions on how you manage your own property 
is it, am I renting this property is the question, you know, like, can you just take it back after I paid for it? Like this is, a, I remember Corey Doctorow's talk at FITC talking about DRM and, and, and the inability to edit your own vehicle or edit your own property and, and, and the, the amount of legalities that are involved now. I don't know. It's a, it's a yeah. little one-sided right now. And I, mm-hmm. it, it's out of balance. And I think the pendulum will swing and, and uh, will correct itself eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now it definitely feels quite a bit out of balance on the technology product side. But like you some feel- weird business models are coming up for sure. But Go ahead. I think Go ahead, they're sorry. missing the mark with users and mm-hmm. um, that's it. And they're going to over they're they're going to overshoot them a little bit and um that we, and we fall into this fallacy with products all the time um in that um progress is linear progress is not linear um project mm-hmm. progress seems linear and then all of a sudden something pops up over here and takes off in an asymmetrical way um you know uh and uh so that's what encourages me i'm like yeah, I know. When you look yeah. at the current path, you're like, it's running straight into a wall and it's a tragedy. I was like, well, guess what that usually signals? Something's Something going to pop up over yeah. here and take progress off. Like, is linear only because of pers- yeah. progress is linear hindsight. because of perspective. Yeah. yeah. You look back yeah. and go, oh yeah, that oh, was yeah. definitely going to happen because of the way it went. But like what progress is, is, is a super steep curve to a leveling off to a drop to a super steep curve to a leveling off to a drop. And it's yeah. like, you and see it's it not all always the this time. Begat that, began yeah. this, began yeah. that. It's usually <laughs> this curve like runs out and something way over here pops up, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that this was the start of it, but even like think back to Netflix when it was, you know, uh, a, a, a DVD a renting DVD service. like mailing service, and yeah. and I mean, <laughs> it, again, every everyone's heard the story that that Blockbuster laughed them out of the the pitch meeting because they thought it was the dumbest idea they've ever heard. Um, but and I think that that's one of those instances where you have something that sort of happens off on the periphery that nobody pays attention to because they think it's just not a great idea, and then it becomes the thing that takes over the entire industry. But I think that that's what corporations are now so afraid of is that there's these things that can pop up that their current knowledge makes them discount because they're not they're not thinking about the future of that thing yeah and yeah they, they, and they want, start to purchase things that, mm-hmm. that are inconsequential long term right like they, well, they like, go there's so much buying yeah, yeah. let's just buy buying these out. companies yeah. just to make sure that they don't they don't overtake us at some point yeah, and I think that 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 is the part that's very dangerous to to uh, to innovation. I don't think it's it. I th- I think that we will be able to circumvent these things because there will always be something that comes up that people discount and don't see as being the next big thing, and then it just survives and and helps push things forward. But I think that that's again where the mindset of the users and of the audience, if it's mm-hmm. a, a, a content thing, has to have that, that element of counterculturalism that I don't want the thing that everyone else is pushing because like if we take this into a, a film spectrum now, I, I love Marvel movies, but I mean, holy crap, they're everywhere. And I don't want it to be the only type of movie that's out there. I want to see other stuff as well. And I want somebody to come along and give me a story that I definitely was not expecting you know, in a style that I wasn't expecting. And if I can go into that movie and say, this is a thing that I did not foresee. And then 
I'm, I'm happy. That's then, you know, progress. That is some kind of innovation in film and storytelling. Well, um, um, totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, I mean, and I'm a real optimist, you know, my philosophy is one of technophilia and that it's okay to love mm -hmm. technology so long as you love humanity as much or more. And, uh, you know, that helps with what is the designer's, product designer's dilemma, right? Um, uh, you know, in this, you know, this freedom to pursue like meaningful design, this was a, a main reason um, behind starting Argo uh, Design. And our creed is think by making something that came up just earlier in, mm -hmm. in the podcast, you know, this notion that we could be free to hunt out the places where design would make a meaningful difference um, and could you know, live in a way that um, we could, let me put it this way. It's hard to be a product designer these days and not feel like you're foisting a bunch of junk <laughs> auto marketplace yeah. right that technology is not doing anything to advance humanity anymore that you know we have a that we're reaching peak technology right which i say is a year in which half of any pr product that comes out does nothing to advance humanity whatsoever which is something we wouldn't even thought possible 10 years ago but now i think we feel like we're right on the cusp of right <laughs> and and um we're questioning that right and um so it's a product designer. You're like, oh, am I just build making? Am I just designing more crap for the world, um, <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or it, it, uh, it, it, you know, and it can be pretty depressing. And the idea is like, look for the the meaningful parts. And to it's okay. No, it's okay to love technology. You just gotta love humanity as much and look for that balance, right? And technology works best when it. Um, amplifies humanity rather than emulates humanity. And I think right. this is the root of where we're having conflict right now. We're seeing technology that exists really to service itself, or we're seeing a group of technology and robotics and AI that is emulating humanity. And then the next easy step is replacing humanity, right? And we're not sure that that's really the right direction to go. We're wondering um, who's wheat and who's bread here, um, so to speak. And so well, like, yeah, I mean, it makes you nervous. Like makes you very <laughs> nervous. Like, is how that, do we get past this? How do we like break past this moment? Has that been problematic for you, Jared? Because I mean, you mentioned that you're a very optimistic person by nature. You've, you've obviously courted the underdog for a long time, been the underdog forever. And I mean, as we can see behind you, um, the 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 porta potty, no <laughs> signage that, you know, <laughs> that, that that for Burning Man uh, last year. I want to think last year Burning Two Man. Two years ago. Two years ago, excuse me. And oh, last year was the 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 sailors, the sails, right? The trailing soul, yeah, the big hundred trailing yards soul. of light and fabric, yeah. Um, I have to I have to say like like you have while. How do I say that? I got to say this in the right way. I feel like I'm going to say it the wrong way. As someone who doesn't seem to care all that much about being successful, you care very much about doing the right thing and succeeding because of it. 
Like, do you feel that that's kind of an accurate, or do you feel like you just love being successful? Or like, I don't know. You always seem like the kind of guy that digs, you, you dig the art of things versus, versus the thing itself. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I don't. Oh, you. I get, no, no. I, <laughs> um, I've always believed that, um, you know, you use the word success um, follows, you know, value, you know, and uh, for something to be valuable, it has that balance of goodness in it. Right. And that's why, you know, that's, you know, that's why we have this, this pursuit at Argo to like do design where it will make a, have a meaningful impact mm-hmm. on the product. Right. And, um, and, so but yes, I've always cared a lot more about that side of things. I really, I really have, and um, and strangely enough, um, it, you know, it's created a lot of value. But it's not a one-man show. So there's maybe there's other people who care about one more. No, of course, of, don't of mind. course. No. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> there's always been there's always been someone else. I mean, there's always been other people to help steer the ship or maintain the course or however you want, whatever metaphor you want to use. But what I'm saying is that, that you've aligned yourself with, for lack of a better phrase, the forces of good, you know, being concerned for the greater good of all versus the good of one or the, you know, the corporate good, you know what I mean? Like that to me is at least that's from the outside looking in. Like I've always been very impressed with your concern for just a generalized good as opposed to the good of one. I'm a twin. So I, I don't understand the good of one. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. That's a great response. Uh, everything has always been a balance in my life, but um, uh, I shoot, I do a lot of utilitarian thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and um I actually believe there, you know, I, I'm one of these strange people who thinks there is a purpose to humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it, and that, you know, we're not just, we're not just placed randomly in the, in the, in the universe. Um, uh, we're also creatures that live completely in fiction. Right. And so you can kind of like make the world, whatever you want it to be. Yep. And it's the fictions that have motivated us the, the greatest, um, and, um, right. And so, uh, um, it is also, hmm, how do I, I do get like that? I seem to like, I've asked you a question that you cannot answer like in any way. I can't, like, I just have, I just, it's a, it's a bit of an answer here. Um, I'm trying to figure out how I get out, I get out of this other than just stating what the purpose of humanity is. And it's to create as much love and intellect for the universe as possible. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because um, those are actual physical forces. We have not fully discovered this yet, but we will. And those physical forces are actually contributing to the fabric of the universe in very fundamental ways. Uh, they might be the structure of the universe that's keeping it from collapsing upon itself and repeating another cycle of Big Bang. It might be that we were seated in our spot, the 
resonantly because this is a really good structural node to have intelligence that is capable of producing love and intellect. Mm-hmm. We went through all the modulations of biological evolution and now we're beginning the transition to technological evolution. And we're realizing that as much as we think of ourselves as earthlings, we are not. We are actually more accurately Solarians. We were all birthed in a system around a star we call soul and that we need to start thinking that way because if we do, we could maximize the amount of love and intellect we can produce for the, for, for the universe. And at first that love and intellect will give us the ability to communicate to other intelligent cultures out there in the universe. And if we produce enough of it, it'll get strong enough to actually uh, allow us transportation to those places. But meanwhile, it produces a lot of interesting effects when you change your thinking from an earthling to a, a solarian. Uh, first of all, we think of the earth as finite resources because she has finite resources. So one of our major issues right now is how to deal with those resources. We cut ourselves up into nation states. We give ourselves identity. We begin fighting and bickering over the proper use of it. How much of it should be ecology? How much of it should be minerals? We start focusing on the environment rather than the ecology because we start thinking, overthinking the temperature because we're thinking this is our only home. There's no way to escape it. First part is collect. It is our only home, but it's not the only resources we have access to. We have access to the full resources of the solar system, and that can solve a lot of our problems. And this ends part one of our interview with Jared Ficklin. (laughs) Oh, snap! (laughs) Part two, the Solarian myth, continues in two episodes' time. Thanks for listening. This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content contained in this episode is copyright Stefan Grambart and Hugh Elliott. Intro voice by Jeff Wright. Intro music track is Energy by Not Of from their 2015 album Peak. Questions or comments can be sent to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Any other information can be found at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Yeah.